This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Air Force has been planting seeds for new technologies over the past few years by investing in prototypes. The hope is they'll bloom into exciting new programs. But now, Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall says the weed whacker is coming. Federal News Network Scott Mossioni joins me with more on the service's 2024 budget cycle. And Scott, this is they're just getting passbacks for 2023, but they're thinking about 2024. So what's going on here? What have they got planned? That's right. Well, that's just how the military budget goes. You always need to be thinking about two years ahead. And one of the things they have planned is, as we said, they've been putting a lot of feelers out there for interesting technologies, which means uh, creating prototypes and sending out SIBR, small business and innovative research contracts and everything in between in, way, in hopes of finding technologies that will counter Russia and China. However, those programs are also very expensive when you have hundreds of them or even thousands of them. Uh, we had uh, the Air Force at one point when they did a pitch day put out 242 different small business contracts uh, in hopes of new innovations just in one day. So obviously those things start to grow as they are maturing and becoming maybe programs of record and maybe not. At this point, none of them are really programs of record, but Frank Kendall says they're starting to get a little bloated. So what they're going to do is really have a night court process and cut back on these, uh, the, some of these programs that they think are not going to really make it to fruition. Now, one of the things that they're going to be looking at is specifically, is this the program that's going to make it to field and will it be helpful in the field? Secondly, there might be this second category that is maybe this will work out, maybe it won't. We need to do some more analysis. And the third is, even if you can get this thing to a situation where it is a program of record, it's still just not going to be for us in the field and we're just going to cut it. So that's what they're going to be looking through. He's going to be working with the Joint Chiefs on this and and also his officials. And they're going to be hopefully cutting, for them, hopefully cutting back on some of their S&T costs. Well, the issue is not just the cost, but also the sustainment and the management of too many platforms. You get a certain loss of efficiency over time. Did he name any particular programs that they think just aren't going to make it and will be the first to get he, snipped? He didn't name any at this point, and I, I don't think that he wanted to scare any companies or scare anyone away from working with the Air Force. Uh, you know, this is something that they're going to be looking at very carefully and want to make sure that they they take the right ones out. They don't want to stifle innovation, which is something that they've worked very hard in the past few years to try and cultivate. So the last thing they want to do is scare away non-traditional defense companies or small businesses. Uh, we've seen this sort of thing happen in other services. The, Air, the Army did the night court process, which I, I referred to earlier, where they sat down and just reprioritized everything in their budget, saving well, reprioritizing, not necessarily saving more than $10 billion in some years. That was really helpful for them in their modernization process. And as you know, the Air Force has plenty of modernization that it needs to do as well when it comes to the nuclear triad and many other things. And isn't the implication always in these innovation and cyber programs and DIU programs and you name it, the innovation unit, this works, that works, isn't the implication always that we're just going to look at this and maybe fund a little seed money to see how it might work out? But nobody's promised production quantities programs of records from the outset, are they? No, not at all. And and that's sort of the interesting part about this is that these have gone into phase two or phase three, which it gives more and more money. It always becomes 
an increasing amount of money. It starts with $200,000, then it's $500,000, then it's a million. But at some point, you have to pull the plug and say, all right, this isn't going to make it into our program of record or, or whatever. The Air Force has certain Vanguard programs that it's really committed to, some of those being Golden Horde, which is a uh, swarming capability for drones, another being uh, the possibility of delivering supplies through spacecraft. So uh, it does have a lot of things that it's really putting its bets on, but some just aren't going to make the cut. And that's what Frank Kendall is saying. And they're going to take this time to really look at it and figure out which ones are not going to make it and hopefully save some money, reprioritize it possibly into new technologies or into ones that they're already developing that are more mature. Something Kendall said that was interesting is that once they decide something is going to be a program of record or they want to invest in and keep developing it into production quantities, as he said, we got to move it into the five-year cycle. He was talking about the POM and the and the uh, program planning, budget, and execution process. And isn't that often a graveyard for a lot of innovation, trying to make it through this crazy, disjointed serial program they have called the PPBE? It is. And, you know, the, part of the issue with that is, as we've talked about many times before, is the valley of death, where something goes from the prototype stage into the the program of record stage and actually getting it there is is the hard part is is actually flipping it into something that can be produced now one of the things that we're seeing in this two-year cycle and part of that let me just add on on to that part of that is the the funding we hit their crs that that are they have to deal with where they can't get enough money for new starts or just not being able to keep these smaller companies going and then them having to get bridge loans because they're just too small to work with the government on these longer term sorts of, of timelines. One of the things that Congress is working on is they've created a PPBE reform committee, which has the likes of Ellen Lord and Jamie Morin from the Cape. They're going to be looking into how they can shorten this two year cycle and sometimes five year cycle and sometimes 10 year cycle into something that will be uh, much more efficient for the Defense Department and the military right. services. But that commission is just barely getting started. I don't even think it has its budget yet because of the continuing resolution. So that could be a couple of years till we see what reforms they propose, and then your two palm cycles down the road from there. So it could be years getting that thing changed, correct? That's right. We can probably look forward to something in 2040 to uh, make that, that actually work out. <laughs> yeah, a hundred years after McNamara first put it in, maybe it'll come to fruition. <laughs> and anything else we need to know about Air Force innovation? What else are they planning? Did he give a clue? Not really. I think they're going to continue working on these pitch days. One of the things that I just talked about, they also have AFWorks, which is their way of taking commercial companies and commercial solutions and moving them into the military. One thing I'd like to point out is that this is a little bit different, and it seems a little bit of a matureness compared to what the Defense Department has been working on over the past five years. There was sort of this flurry of innovation that they needed, and they were just kind of throwing out all these small little contracts as much as they could and trying to come out with interesting ways to send out these these small contracts. Now we're seeing that they're really starting to tend to, uh, to keep with our earlier uh, metaphor, tend to these flowers that really seem to be the ones that are the prettiest and the ones that seem to be the most useful and just pull out the weeds of the others. All right. Let's hope those spurn companies don't say to themselves, well, the Air Force didn't want it. Maybe China will. That's right. Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. Thanks so much. Thank you. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA 
And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.